Looking back now on those pictures, she looks amazing. And not because of, oh, we were so cruel and mean and she like wasn't fat at all, but because our perception of what's attractive has changed. Jessica Simpson, who arguably I is- don't think I can defend those pants. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Lainey. I am the founder of LaineyGossip.com, a talk show host and an entertainment reporter. And I'm so happy today that Duanna has finally agreed to talk to me for an extended period of time about BTS. Hi, I'm Duanna Taha. I am a television screenwriter and producer, and I have extracted my own promise from Lainey uh, that maybe she agreed to because of her weakened ill state uh, that involves approximately 20 years of research into the lives of certain child stars. Today, we get into Jessica Simpson's book, Open Book, and why it is the best work of her career. Plus, we are investigating the rise and rise of supernova band BTS, why they are seven names that you are about to be even more aware of, and what that means for their future in mainstream music. This is Show Your Work. odd doing this podcast today because you're not feeling so well. Things are different overall. We are on our own today. Our sound engineer, Yasek, is not with us to um, nitpick um, at every little thing. No, it's true. He's not here. We're recording in the daytime. But the thing about you being sick is that, <laughs> like, you're altogether kinder and gentler, and I don't really know how to deal with it. I'm pretty vulnerable. You are. <laughs> Even the way you laughed at something I said before we started recording, I was like, oh, I I don't know if I like how sweet and gentle that laugh was. We um we went out for dinner the other night and I was like in pretty bad shape, but I still needed to go out because whatever, I was vain and I liked my makeup that day. Because <laughs> you've been working, which is obviously the way to get over being ill is to continue working. <laughs> And I remember during the dinner at one point you were – because I couldn't hold myself upright. No, was, you were sleeping on a window, it basically. It was full-on leaning and you were like, I've never seen you like this. But then what woke me up is, of course, we were gossiping about somebody we know and I fucking jumped right out of my seat. I, I, I am not sure I remember the specific gossip, but I remember a moment where you were like, wait, stop, like mustered some energy and tuned right in. So my point is being, I think that over the course of this pod, this episode, I, my posture is going to get better and better because we're talking about so many of things that I love today. Yeah. So I, the, what's interesting about today is when we settled on our topics, I feel a little bit like it is the convince me episode. 
Um, the so our topics for today are ones that you guys have written in about and wanted to talk about, but frankly, ones that you and I have been circling with each other for some time. Yeah, I I don't feel exactly the same way. Um, I'm obsessed with one of the things I'm obsessed with when I think about you is there are two things. Um, the first thing is that you. For some weird reason, I don't know how, like, because you're good at very many things and you have specializations. And one of your, I think, random specializations is the celebrity memoir. I mean, you, you really, you have really done the library of celebrity memoirs. Um, in a select uh, oeuvre, I suppose. Yeah. Or, yes, uh, let me put it another way. I commit them to memory in a way that is weird, right? Yes. There are fiction books that I know I should I've... say celebrity memoir or slash biography or whatever, right? Totally, yeah. yes. Like there are fiction books that I know I've read that are like high profile or that you're supposed to have read. Yeah. Um, and I know I've read them, but I don't necessarily retain them. But ask me about what happened in the Andrew Lloyd Webber biography that I read for a project <laughs> in grade nine. And I can still remember the words he used to break up with his first wife. That's right. So you, it's it's just, it's a specialization, this, like, this area of, like, PhD knowledge that makes me so happy. And also, you, for some reason, have an encyclopedic knowledge of boy bands. Well, and we're going to be able to combine those today. It's true. The encyclopedic knowledge actually has a, like, a definable route. My first gig ever in TV. I was an intern when I was in school uh, for a show that specialized in uh, music for like tweens, basically, right? And so when boy bands were coming up, that was the time that it was happening. And actually a lot of kind of mainstream music outlets wouldn't play them yet. So like if your local rock station or MTV or whatnot was still deeply involved with you know, grungy rock bands and that five-minute period where we all thought the next big thing in music was going to be electronica. This show, called The Hit List, was dealing in uh, boy bands and uh, tweens and so forth. So, yeah, it became my training ground, and so it imprinted on me. So that's where part of that chapter of the encyclopedia comes from but I can't shake it. I know that stuff forever now. Right. And that also intersects with your knowledge of child actors and child performers. Absolutely. Um, and I have some experience in that too. So with that all in mind, with our credentials fully presented, right? we are talking about Jessica Simpson's memoir, Open Book, which is, I'm going to say, you can deny, but right now your favorite book of, like, of 2020. No, of 2020 and 2019. I don't remember you talking about a book this much in 2019 either. Maybe I didn't. <laughs> um, and I think that's part of what I was getting at with the convince me thing. Because remember, and we can link to this, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Vulture released an article of like 73 new emotions or new um, yeah. like um, words for new emotions. Yeah. And I don't know if this was in there, but I feel like there should be a word for when you get obsessed with something and nag everybody around you to care. <laughs> um, because, yes, I read Jessica Simpson's book. Oscar weekend, you were fucking obsessed. Like, every waking moment, you were clutching 
that book and uh, talking. And then every five seconds, you were like, oh, my God, like right now. And I, I, I said, I'm into it. I just – I'm not right now. Right. Um, well, yeah. And so I think that the reason is – as you say, I've read a lot of these books, but – one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you about it and one of the reasons that uh, it's notable for our podcast is because it is filled in many, many different ways with work. Um, so obviously, a lot of people have read the like juicy excerpts by now um, or heard about them or so forth, but there's a ton of work that goes into this book and I almost can't, uh, I can't, I'm had a hard time thinking of how to break it down. Luckily for me, last week on the site, you actually linked to an episode of Show Your Work where you and I talked about Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, uh, last spring, I think. And there are more than a few comparisons between the two. Jesus Christ. I know. Joanna, you just you just put Jessica Simpson in a sentence with uh, Michelle Obama. Um, I defy anybody who has read both to tell me that I'm wrong. So here's why. First of all, uh, like talk about how you feel. You in this case are the, uh, the audience, the outside audience about the idea of Jessica Simpson writing a book to begin with. Like, uh, you know, what's the reaction? What's the first move there? That is a good place to start because on face value, that um, in terms of the work, that is something that a lot of people have been asking us, uh, writing in to discuss on the podcast, whether or not we think she wrote it, mm -hmm. if a ghostwriter was employed, mm -hmm. if that even matters, mm -hmm. because the ghostwriter, if the ghostwriter was em employed um, to do this, they've managed to do it in Jessica's voice. Like, I've, I've just started, mm -hmm. but from what I've read so far, I can hear Jessica Simpson saying these things. I can hear her putting, I can hear her putting things in this way. Absolutely. And it's definitely true that the voice is there. And I definitely believe that there are entire stretches that she must have physically keyed in herself. I think sometimes we talk about a ghostwriter and we believe like, oh, so-and-so just sits there and rambles and, you know, you have the image of a, of a typist like furiously arranging all the things and so forth. Um, I think one of the things to talk about is that obviously this book, like many memoirs like this, is pretty sequential. Like it goes through her life. Yeah. But I think that um, part of a ghostwriter's job or even an editor, anybody like that, can be to sequence the events, right? Yeah. Or to introduce concepts early on. Yeah. Um, for example, there is a, a tragedy that happens in Jessica's life. She loses somebody close to her fairly early on, and she often refers back to that as a touchstone through hard times, through good times, et cetera. But they do such a good job of planting that person beforehand in a way that feels natural and organic so that you don't feel like you're just reading about it for the sake of the exploitation. Does that make sense? Yep. It happens pretty early on in Jessica's life. Call it around 15 or 16 before we, the people, know about Jessica Simpson. But it, but it's woven enough into her life that I 
A, I felt lost Mm -hmm. when she lost that person. Yeah. And B, I felt like, oh, no, this is baked in in a way that doesn't just feel like it's pressing my manipulation buttons. Yeah. So that could be a ghostwriter thing, you know? Or um, just, yeah, like turns of phrase and going Mm -hmm. like, oh, don't lose that. Let's bring that back. That can be that person also. I guess what we're coming to in terms of answering that question is – I don't think it really fucking matters. No, I don't think it matters either. And I think that um, it's good work because, yeah, whoever has done this work has done it and maintained Jessica Simpson's voice, which we didn't know we needed, right? Like I didn't know how much I needed this book, which is why I love it so much. And of course, it's like Jessica Simpson, if they were going to publish a novel about – or pardon me, if they were going to publish a memoir about her life She could have done this five years ago, eight years ago, whatever, right? She clearly has had the offer, but it's tied to the the implication, which is also all over the press, is that it's tied to her sobriety, that that it's tied to her triumphing over a dependence on alcohol. I don't know if she ever uses the word alcoholic, but to drop that as part of your look how open I'm going to be strategy is real, like it puts your money where your mouth is. Like, yeah. I'm not just kidding. I really am gonna gonna get real about this. Well, to go back to your question, did I ever think Jessica Simpson would write a book? I would answer that and say, I never thought that it would be a book that would catapult, maybe catapult is the wrong word. But I don't mind that. Yeah, sure. I never thought that it would be a book that would catapult Jessica Simpson back to the top or back to this place of redemption. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't think that that would be what she came back on. That would be the source of the comeback, right? Well, I love that you said that because it implies that she hasn't been back, right? And one of the things that the book really deals in, uh, there's, there's sort of two things that are dancing around the sidelines. And one of them, which I think is is a lot of people's early reaction, is, wow, people really thought I was stupid. And how stupid were those people uh-huh. that they thought that of me? There's a sequence where she's in uh, like kind of an indie bookstore buying a bunch of old classics to take on the road with her. Um, she talks about loving great expectations and always having a copy around, but she had bought a few other things. Right. And, the poetry of Elizabeth Barrett Browning and so forth. And the book clerk says to her, oh, hi, you know, this is so weird. Don't take offense, but you look like like the smart version of Jessica Simpson. Right. It, like not knowing, of yeah. course, that that was who she was. So I love that she, either we're buying or she's telling the truth that, you know, she was all this time going, isn't it hilarious that they think I'm an airhead? Amazing. Right. And of course, with the release of this book, it's the ultimate sort of like, haha, gotcha. I am clearly not the thing you thought I was, or more than the thing that you thought I was. Right. That said, our site, my site, has been covering Jessica Simpson, you know, since the very beginning. Uh huh. One of the nicknames I used to have for her, uh-huh. um, that I don't use anymore is porny. Right. That is the physical presentation. Yeah. Or was the physical presentation. Now, 
do I have regrets or, I mean, we don't use that to refer to her anymore. We evolve, we change, we grow, grow we learn, we apologize. And yet, when I, when I look back at the public image, both assumed and offered, yep. she did lean into a certain sex symbol status and she explains now that she leaned into it because she thought that was the only thing she had. Well, yeah. I said there were two sort of threads through this book that surprised me, but maybe there's a third one. And obviously her physical presentation is a third one. So uh, you talk about, I have all this well-versedness in boy bands. Um, So Jessica Simpson's story is pretty uh, common to a lot of these young stars. Um, She was super active in church uh, growing up as a young person. Her father, in fact, was a youth minister. And so she talks about how long before she ever had showbiz dreams, she was a singer in her church and how early on the church elders, like actual adults, were saying uh, her body is too distracting, her breasts are too pornographic, get it out of here. Yeah. Get it, like cover it up, you have to wear vests, uh, that kind of thing that resonated at school as well. As if vests make it, don't make it worse. Well, you're, like you're, you're actually, it's a, it's a, a vest is like almost a corset. So Yeah, in lots yeah. of ways, but also as if like <laughs> a 13-year-old has any control over how her body is developing. Yeah. So I think what you react to, and I don't think she would disagree, um, apparently I'm now also Jessica Simpson's psychic, <laughs> like, uh, voice. Yes. But I think part of what you're reacting to is, yeah, there were two extremes, right? The one before everything was covered up, do not have a body, like do everything only above the neck. And she talks about, yeah, teachers would comment uh, guys in high school were only interested because of her body, which she was constantly trying to, like, factor out of the discussion. Yeah. And then the immediate other side of it is, yeah, signing with Sony and Tommy Mottola was like, you're going to be amazing, lose 15 pounds. Yeah. So the body and proving that she could have the body and how she went about getting it and all that kind of thing definitely is a, is a, a factor. She never comes quite close to saying, if I hadn't looked like this, I don't know if I would have signed the record contract, but it's kind of implied, right? Yeah. I think one of the things that makes me nuts about sort of young pop in general is that when it was first coming up, and maybe this is some of the derision that I was talking about earlier, when people talked about manufactured boy bands or they don't write their own songs or whatever, the next thing would always be, And they can't even sing. Mm -hmm. And that always bugs me because it's the one thing they do have. Yeah. Jessica Simpson would freely say, like, some of her songs were shit and she this and that. But she can really sing. Yeah. Um, So that's an interesting kind of uh, dichotomy there. But then again, there's millions of people who can sing who don't look like Jessica Simpson at 15, at 16. Right? So that's really interesting. And then, uh, you know, she talks. I think this is why this is so interesting. None of the elements of the book are new, which is to say she grew up in the church. Her family didn't always have a lot of money. Uh, When it came time to start getting into professionalism, 
her father became her manager. These are all beats we've heard from other, yeah. other people, other places. The difference is she talks about the good and the bad of that and why. Early on, she says something to the effect of, uh, that wasn't the first time that I'd have to pay somebody off uh, because of one of my father's mistakes, uh, and it wouldn't be the last. Damn. <laughs> God damn. Yeah. That's dramatic. Uh, she talks overtly about how the music industry changed her parents and her family, about what it took from her sister, Ashley, even at the time. It really is that open. And so that alone gets you a long way into this book. I think that's why it's good work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's forensic. And the reason why I use that word is because even with non-celebrities, it's difficult to be sober and truly 360 or as close to 360 as you can be in looking at your life and presenting parts of it that aren't just defensive, like people were shit to me, the media was shit to me, John Mayer was shit to me, mm-hmm. um, and but instead claim the parts that were like, yeah, some bad decisions were made on my behalf by the people I trusted and have defended. And I can't blame the media on that. I can't blame the industry on that. I can't even blame John Mayer for that. Like, there were people who sold me out who shouldn't have sold me out. I sold myself out at times when, you know, I should have known better. I've learned since. Like, it's it sounds really Pollyanna or Mary Sunshine, to borrow what you say, but it it really is um, a thoughtfully considered portrayal of self that explores both the shadow, like it maybe even delves into more of the self-shadows than I think we've seen. Um, you know, the closest comparison maybe I would have is last year Demi Moore mm-hmm. released a memoir. And that, to me, when I read it, I, I thought the same thing. Like, I was like, this is really introspective. Like, there's no… I didn't feel like there was a blame game happening. Right. Certainly some people ended up blaming people for her, and that's out of her control, as it's out of Jessica's control. But there was no, um, there is no intention to, you know, cast blame on anybody. Mm-hmm. It, it really is genuinely inter- an interest in telling the story as she saw it, being there in from like a very, very 360 again way. Well, I love that you say that as well, because one of the things that is great work in this book is that um, people are seen as three-dimensional. Not everybody is seen as three-dimensional, but in terms of her dad, for example, like that's a fun trope for all of us too, right? Blame the parents, blame the manager parent who cares more about dollars than they care about their kid. And that's not the characterization. There's always there's a lot of balance. There's a lot of here's where it was good. Here's where it was bad. Here's where it was a good choice made. Here's where it wasn't. Or here's where my dad went to bat for me and lost. Yeah. And here's where he won. I'll give you an example. So Jessica Simpson was, uh, I think we all agree, sort of an also ran in the like teen pop explosion, right? She was there. Some people liked some hits, some didn't, but she was at best, she was an also ran. Yeah. What made Jessica Simpson a household name was Newlyweds on MTV. Yeah. 
right? This is the story of her marriage with Nick Lachey, and it was her father who pitched the idea of this reality show, I think based on the Osbournes, uh, like based on the success of the Osbourne show, um, said, hey, we should do this. And the record company thought it was a terrible, terrible idea, and it was going to like torpedo them both. Mm -hmm. And what happened, of course, was the polar opposite. Yeah. Right? Like, remove all the varnish, show people who you really are. Yeah. That's, A, that's somebody who feels confident that his daughter and also his, you know, uh, his client. His paycheck, but also his daughter and his client is going to come off well. Yeah. Which she mostly does. And also somebody who has some insight into the business. It's not just a bumpkin who's like, let's get some money. You know, that's insightful. So allowing that to be portrayed as complicated Mm -hmm. is, is to me, that's some masterful work. It would be easy to just be like, here were evil people who signed checks or didn't or whatever. Um, The nuance in there is because a lot of what characterizes the stumbles and the the rise and the stumble again and how thorny it is to unpack child stardom or young stardom is there is an upside. Like we do talk about it like there's a lot of tragedy and there has been. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that those parts of the discussion in a second. But, but what you can't deny and what she's trying not to deny, she's layering it with like, yeah, it was my dad – who came up with this idea to expose me uh-huh. in this way. Yeah. But he was right because I was interesting and everybody was like everybody cared about me in a way that they didn't before, in a way that my singing career wasn't doing for me. Absolutely. And because of that show, it's like how I became Jessica Simpson, how I became an A-lister for a time and then dropped out and became an A-lister again. But you kind of need that ascent, first of all. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's when, yes, when she became a household name. I mean, a lot of these details have been printed elsewhere, but suffice it to say that she came into the marriage with less money and less fame than Nick Lachey and left with much, much more. Uh, And that's because that show made her a star. And that's what's complicated about it too, because um, when we're talking about exposure and a spotlight and what it can do to somebody... Um, I think that that's what's really hard to wrestle with. Yeah, I I agree with you. Yeah, Yeah. especially because, and this is, again, this is another turn that could be easy but isn't. She talks about the minutia of how it worked to tape the show with she and Nick. Nick. Yeah. She talks about some of the conflicts that they had while shooting the show, but she never once blames the breakdown of their marriage on the fact that they were doing the show. Right. That, to me, is huge. And and then she goes further. To your point, she'll say, he was like this, this, and this. Like, criticism, criticism, criticism. Uh-huh. And then she says, and I would act like a child and pout until he felt terrible. And that was my contribution. She, it's not being pulled out of her either. She's yeah. very forthcoming about, here was a flaw that I had. Here was a thing that I didn't do right. Here was me... You know, she's taking sort of responsibility in the moment. It's impressive. Yeah, it is. So I said there were three things, sort of three tenets about the the book, and I keep coming up with more. But uh, there was the idea of I'm not who you think I am, and I'm not dumb, as you may have thought. 
There's the idea of her body and the constant politicizing of her body all the way through. And the other thing that's fascinating to me is that Jessica Simpson, as we know intellectually, but I don't think we hear it out loud that much, is a stealth billionaire. Yeah. Right? Now, part of that is because of, most of that is because of her clothing line. But what is amazing about this book is that she never stopped working. You have said a couple of times, you know, her ascent and her descent and whatnot. Yeah. But she actually always had like enough projects that I almost never knew they were happening. She talks about even when things were lean-ish, she and Nick could make a hundred grand singing three songs at a bar mitzvah. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can talk about that in a different way at a different time. Right. But, you know, she was shooting the show. She was re-recording things. She was doing uh, videos. She does a lot of charity work, which she didn't, uh, which obviously she didn't hide, but also is, uh, takes a lot of place in the book. But I'm very aware that the image of newlyweds to me implied that she was always on the couch. Yeah. And in fact, she was actually kind of working constantly. And that's a work ethic thing that probably has to do with why she's now a billionaire. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned the work ethic thing because the other night when we were at dinner, um, we talked about, and this was why um, in the end I said to you, we need to talk about Jessica Simpson on this episode. Not that you didn't want to and hadn't been lobbying for it, but we ended talking about the Mickey Mouse Club. Yep. And at dinner, you it was this one sentence that, or this like one idea that we explored, of course, because we fucking talk about Mickey Mouse Club and <laughs> boy bands and whatever during dinner. Right. Where you were like, yeah, but as, again, complicated as Mickey Mouse Club would have been and all of those relationships and whatnot, almost all of them became superstars. A lot of them, for sure. And your conclusion is because yeah, because that's where they learned when to do the work, how to do the work. They learned the work. They learned the steps. Absolutely. Um, if you don't know the link here, Jessica Simpson tried out for Mickey Mouse Club, and the way she tells it was more or less a shoe-in until she uh, ruined her audition. She chokes. She, Justin Timberlake, was not helpful in, in yeah. talking about her reaction. Um, but yeah, it's a training ground so that you, yeah, you learn to learn your lines. You learn to be perfect, to have your rehearsal ready Mm -hmm. so that when somebody throws you an opportunity later on, you have all that prep. You know, I've seen people, I've seen it in so many ways. You know, often we talk about a, a young talent and let's find somebody new and uh, unexposed and that kind of thing. And they're super fresh. And they kind of can't handle it, mm-hmm. um, either in terms of the pressure of the work or in terms of just how much focus on them there is. And I think something like a Mickey Mouse Club teaches young people that your product as a as a star, but also just as a performing, singing, dancing uh, unit is part of the whole, right? If you don't do your part, then nobody else can do their part. Yeah. And otherwise, it can it can be a problem. Yet there's a story, indulge me for a second in a sort of a sidebar, there's a, a kind of a story about the first season of Gilmore Girls uh, that 
Rory and Lorelai, the characters, when they're doing their walk and talks, they're walking arm in arm a lot. Yeah. And that is because, allegedly, Alexis Bledel was so green that she didn't know how to hit her mark, which is to say you have to walk to a certain place that the camera crew has marked so that they can get the shot of you, like not go off stage or whatever. But she couldn't do it. And so what's happening when they're walking arm in arm is that Lauren Graham is actually dragging Alexis Bledel to the right Right. place on the set. Yeah. Um, And that was how they had to do that. That works great in that show because them walking arm in arm is not so crazy, right? Yeah. Um, But on another show, that could be a real problem, a real time waster for sure. And so, yeah, the Mickey Mouse Club is just one of the things that's training these guys to, to get to a place that is... Uh, where they just have the tools and then they can be themselves after the fact. And to come back to some points that we've been making throughout this discussion, that's again, this area of complication. You know, we talk about the effect of young stardom Mm -hmm. on these people's lives. We Mm -hmm. talk about being an earner Mm -hmm. at this point in their lives. We talk about the downside of it, but there can be upsides. The upside is like a muscle of hustle. Ooh, I like that phrase. A hustle muscle that gets developed quite early, or at least an understanding of what the beats of good old-fashioned work are that clearly has served people like Justin Timberlake, Mm -hmm. Ryan Gosling, Christina Aguilera, Carrie Russell. I mean, it's as we talked about at dinner the other night, it it's a high percentage of success. Uh, Britney Spears, just Britney to not Spears, bury the lead yeah. there. Yeah. Well, and I want to say something else too, because often I've talked a lot about child stardom on Laney Gossip and on this podcast over the years. And there's always, to me, I'm always aware of a perception of hypocrisy because, of course, I a lot of the TV that I've worked in has been for young people. Um, and has involved uh, people who are young actors. Uh-huh. Uh, I wouldn't say stars. But here's what's brilliant about the Mickey Mouse Club. It's called the Mickey Mouse Club, right. not the Justin Timberlake Club or yeah. the Britney Club. It is about a unit and no one person. I think there's immense value in being a part of a group yeah. and being a part of a thing that uh, that makes you come up. And I think it's probably not an accident that we're talking about boy bands and things like that, that are themselves groups, uh, because it's about, you are only as good as the contribution that you make, but also you're doing it without all that fame and adoration. You're getting the same as everybody else around you. Destiny's Child. And the shows that I've worked on, um, that have had young people have had ensembles. I love that you mentioned Destiny's Child because... Jessica Simpson also talks about how the woman, the A&R rep that ultimately discovered her and sent her to Sony was also the A&R rep that discovered Destiny's Child. So her name is Teresa LaBarbera Whites, and she, uh, the reason that she discovered them both isn't because she's so brilliant, although she clearly is, but she's because- known to be a genius. Right. But also that was her territory. Mm-hmm. Texas and that part of like the- I don't know, Central South was her territory. Jessica Simpson was from Texas and Destiny's Child is from Texas. And so anyway, as a result, once they both had their contracts, they were often 
performing at events together and very different, obviously, in the type of music and one person versus a group, but they were going through it together. And I think that's something else that really is notable. Sometimes I'm like, I'll be the first to be like, why do celebrities only ever date other celebrities? Why do they ever whatever? But again, you're talking about the complicated nature of child stardom. And it's like, oh, it's hard. It's isolating. It's this and that. Or, and or, isn't it amazing that you can be friends with somebody who you on the surface don't have anything in common with because they too know what you're going through. Uh They are having this, this same relationship with you. On a side note about Teresa LaBarber White. Yeah. She and Beyonce worked together for a long, long time, like through Destiny's Child, through Solo. In fact, they just stopped working together maybe last year. Mm-hmm. So that well, has been a like a very long working relationship. Yeah, and Jessica Simpson talks about that as well, that she wanted to keep her close by. At times when she didn't have her as close, it was because Sony was like limiting her contact and she worked for them. How yeah. much can she say? And sometimes not. And Casey Cobb, who is one of Jessica's good friends and her longtime assistant, and also she – I said – I joked that I was her sort of – a psychic channeler, but I think Casey Cobb actually is. And she talks a lot about how she regularly sort of slapped her into behaving and being a normal person. Yeah. Uh, No, you have to go on stage. No, you have to do this thing. Um, Was Teresa LaBarbera White's assistant. Mm -hmm. That's where she came up. So the woman knows how to pick people, clearly. Yeah. I find it interesting that we're talking about Jessica Simpson's book um, right after – basically our last podcast, which was about Taylor Swift Uh and her documentary. Yeah, And we were examining the catalog of entertainer docs. Yes. And what they're trying to reveal. Jessica's rollout, the rollout of Jessica's book is also happening concurrently with Justin Bieber's YouTube special Uh or docu-series in which he too is – Attempting to, I don't know, give us reveal the insight on what's really happening. The reaction to both is quite different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Certainly, Jessica, or sorry, certain just certainly Justin Bieber is younger. I mean, he's he's only twenty five, twenty six years old, at a different stage in his career and life, and may not be at the place where all of it can be introspectively examined the way that Jessica can and has. I don't know that Jessica could have written this book at 26 um, or would have been prepared to. Uh-huh. But it certainly, I don't know, I wonder if it charts a certain path for us of projecting what that story for Justin Bieber might be later, what that story for Taylor Swift might be later. Because as you mentioned, Jessica Simpson is a billionaire. Yes, or at least is a to- at least is has a billion dollar business, right? I mean, she calls herself a billionaire yeah. at one point, so yeah. Um, she didn't need to do this book. No, she didn't. Her career certainly wasn't dependent on like for feeding her family and maintaining the lifestyle, right? Wasn't dependent on this book. In fact, I don't know that this book is going to actually make the kind of money her clothing line does. Like, you don't make that much money comparatively through books. No, absolutely not. Um, even though I think it's doing very well. It's, uh, I believe it's was, if it's not still, 
at number one on the New York Times bestseller sure, list. Sure, but at best, it's going to be a few million dollars. Like, it's not breaking Michelle Obama's numbers. So Michelle Obama, rumor has it, $10 million for her book. It's you not mean that be, was what she was paid for That's it. right. It's right. not going to, like, do any more business than that. So when we're talking about a billion-dollar business mm-hmm. – what she's making from this book is like what the clothing line does in a fucking month. Right. Yeah. Yes, basically. It's not adding to the coffers. It has a payoff in other ways, sure, in that it will help the business, of course. Mm-hmm. But again, she didn't need the book to keep the business afloat. How about that? No, for sure. Whereas the others are in the point of their careers where they need – whatever smoke and mirrors or legitimacy or authenticity they have from their docu-series and their reveals to keep the machine going. Jessica Simpson is at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And the book at number two is a very stable genius about Trump, you know? So yeah. like it's it's doing very well for her. But I think to your point, um, she could have revamped a a celebrity career or a singing career or whatever, if that was something she wanted, without writing this book, right? Yeah. I think, though, when we talk about Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift and Jessica Simpson and the reason that this is different and whether or not it charts a course, I think all of these things add up to the same thing. And it comes back to her body. Um, I don't want to spoil this for you, but I don't think it's news that uh, a real sort of low point for her was the chili cook-off. Do you yes. remember that? Oh, yeah. She uh, wore- Listen, I laughed about the chili cook-off, and I think collectively the internet did. Well, here's what's fascinating about that. I mean, the story of the chili cook-off, if you don't know, so there were some pictures published. Uh, everybody thought, oh, she doesn't look good. She looks so different from the way she did. She looks fat was the implication- Here's what's so weird about history and time. Looking back now on those pictures, I think they were from 2006. Is that right? Um, But looking back now, she looks amazing. And not because of, oh, we were so, we were so cruel and mean and she like wasn't fat at all, but because our perception of what's attractive has changed. Jessica Simpson, who arguably is, I don't think I can defend those pants. I but but we but what I'm trying to say to you is that I think there are many people today wearing those same pants with that same fit, and we're embracing a much, much curvier aesthetic in general now than we than we did then. Whether or not you like that particular look, she's undeniably, you know, in a four or a six kind of outfit, it's different than what Jessica Simpson of Boots Were Walking looked like, but it's so not in any way untoward for what we think of as a celebrity body now. Like it's, it's, she looks, uh, you know, she looks lacking where a Kim Kardashian ass is concerned, for example. Does that make sense? To say nothing of, it's just a different moment in time, whether or not the like, pockets on the jeans were the best. It's just like, look at that. That's not a picture that immediately makes you go, oh, I have a reaction. And the picture I'm showing you is shot from below. Yeah. So it just, it's fascinating to me what time can do. Um, But anyway, she talks about how that's a real turning point for her. 
and it was a real moment. She hated it and so forth. And then I think that was sort of the the straw that broke the camel's back. And my point being, she doesn't give a shit anymore. That was actually in 2009. I lied. But I think that was the moment she stopped caring altogether. Obviously, the reason that a lot of people love this book is because there's a lot of dirt dished, right? She has things to say about Christina Aguilera, about Nicholas Shea, about Johnny Knoxville, about John Mayer, about Justin Timberlake, about, uh, about Tommy Mottola, about so many big names that we care about. And it's exciting because she's saying the real stuff. And she's saying the real stuff because she doesn't care anymore. To your point, because she has the ability to feed her family for several generations or because she's achieved everything she wanted to in general success, if not in music or whatever, she doesn't have the fear that people won't love her anymore. She's already gone through that and lived to tell the tale. That's where we're not with Taylor Swift, with Justin Bieber, Mm -hmm. with, uh, God, even her, you know, even her ex-husband is the nominal host of a new reality show on Netflix, right? Um, She does… Kind of benefiting from it. I think he's… I think the timing is convenient. Yeah. um, But I also think about… I can't imagine that's what he imagined he would want to do, you know, um, with his career. But she, and yet it's like a hit Netflix show. Everybody is talking about Love is Blind. They are. I'm three episodes in and he's barely been seen. So I don't know how much net benefit he yeah, or his wife bounce onto him. will get. That said, uh, there was some, you know, they, he doesn't come off great in the book, even when Jessica Simpson is confessing her parts in the problem. And then uh, his wife, uh, Vanessa Lachey, in the press recently sort of wound up looking bad because she said, no, we, we somebody thought that she'd sent, that they'd sent, sent a wedding a gift, present. Yeah. And she was like, no, we didn't. Which but they doesn't, didn't. It, but it doesn't look great no, either. Yeah. Like, so yeah, the timing is interesting. The who benefits from what is interesting. She, Jessica Simpson, is in a massive power position with this book. Because she does not care. And it really comes through. You really get the idea that if she, if this was the last thing she ever said in public, that she'd be fine with it. Mm-hmm. And when you don't care, it, it, it's immensely freeing. What a luxury. Right? I mean, like, I, 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 I don't not care. I, I care too much. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, not to get super spiritual about it, but I think not giving a shit is part of like the journey of life, right? Just being like, I, I think I cannot give a shit. I think I can let the chips fall where they may. But this is the irony of the whole thing. When you don't give a shit, when you really are like, I'm going to put it all on the table because of what I want to do, not because of all the people I want to make happy that's when you do your best stuff. That's when people come out of the woodwork and respond to it. That's why her book is number one on the bestseller list. Right. And it's a maddening, like, uh, what do we call that? It's not a dichotomy. It's a… Contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Exactly. A Sophie's Choice kind of thing. So now that she doesn't care and has put herself in a major power position… Yes. What's the future work? What do you do with this newly reacquired power? 
Well, that's really interesting because she talks about how she says straight up, uh, you know, she's talking about her substance issues and decisions that she made about surgery that she should or shouldn't have and what she worried about with her kids and her and her relationship with her family and whatnot. So that's all out there. Uh, so she's freed from all those expectations, right? And then she talks about how the reason that the clothing line is so successful is because she listened to other women and reflected them in herself. That she says, I knew I was a million sizes, so why shouldn't I make the Jessica Simpson line in a million sizes? No other designer line or celebrity endorsed line had a million sizes. At the time. At that time, yes. yes. Ergo, Jessica Simpson made a billion dollars. But it's a concept that's been proven since, right? That's also what's done so well for Fenty and Rihanna. It's what we talked about not being the case with Ivy Park a few weeks ago. Yeah. So she has a gut instinct for what people will like, right? And that is what you lean into, I suppose. I actually wonder, I think it's interesting that we talk about Newlyweds, the show, as we're moving into sort of phase two or maybe phase three of what reality television is. Uh It was really, um, really mocked for a long time, right? And then there were people going, no, no, it can be good. And now it is seen as the proper art form to tell certain stories, right? I wouldn't be surprised if we saw her do something uh, that was overtly capitalizing on being Jessica Simpson. People connect with her when she's being herself in a way they never did when she was singing right. or even acting, right? So, yeah, I can see her hosting something, not like a uh, – like a something like a Queer Eye for a Jessica Simpson. Right. Or uh, I don't know what, like putting yourself together after divorce or something. I can see that being – a place that she would A, really shine, and B, that she would want to do. Because to your point, she doesn't have to do anything. You know how, like, the afternoon for 25 years was dominated by Oprah? Yes. And now the afternoon is dominated by Ellen. Yes. Although, I don't know if that's across the board. I You're talking about the talk shows, of course. Mm-hmm. But I think there were places where Oprah was on at 11 a.m. Or there may right. still be places where Ellen is on right. at 11 a.m. But or like whatever. the single woman, the like the one woman who hosts a talk show. Right. Um, Ellen has that crown right now. Yeah. There was just an extension. I think she did an extension in 2019 for three years. Yeah. But they're clearly looking for an heir. Like, it, she's not going to do it forever. Right. She's already exploring, like, for instance, what she's been doing lately is, uh, I think part of the deal was letting people host, like, have guest celebrity hosts, like John Legend just did one, Jennifer Aniston just did one to give her time off. Right. And so she can go touring again, like she's, you know, doing more stand-up. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that would be a good medium for Jessica Simpson. I'm going to say no. Um, I don't mean to say it too quickly, but I don't know if the rigor of every day, all the time, that kind of thing is her forte. Um, you know, every day at the same time, I want to meet all these interesting people. I feel like, you know, because I mentioned that she talks about her uh, charity work. Yeah. And the charity work that she does always involves 
uh, some travel. She does a lot with, uh, I think it's called Operation Smile. Smile, yeah. Uh, and also a lot of like USO tours. And she really talks about it in a way that's clear she's getting immersed in it. Yeah. So I think that something that is going to be better for her is an immersion in something for two, three weeks or two, right. three months that you cover. You see her being amazing. And then she doesn't do it. Then she's fully back in her family life. And then maybe you do it again in a year kind of thing. See, I I think that's what I was taking into consideration where, you know, Ellen's going to hold on to the crown for whatever, another five to seven years. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Jessica Simpson is going to, her kids are going to be a little older. For sure. Like there's a different schedule she might be looking at. There's a different like… Um, energy that she might want to be putting into it. By then, she'll be what? Early 40s? How old is she now? She's 39, I believe. Okay. So So mid 40s? It's kind of like that, it's kind of that good sweet spot. I mean, fuck, if conventional TV is still around by then. Oh, that is a dog coming down the stairs. So um, yeah, here we go. I mean, maybe for sure, but I think the other side of it, and I'll be interested in what you think when you finish the book and in what you guys think if you have read the book or if you're now going to read it, obviously people who host uh, shows like that, you know, they're not all of a type, right? But there's something about it where I don't think she craves even that level of interaction. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about somebody like, not everybody's an attention whore or whatever, but even like a Stephen Colbert, for example, like he really gets a delight from meeting all these different people, right? I don't get that from her. I don't get that she needs that. Uh, And she's one of the few people who, when she says, oh, I still have all my childhood friends around me and that kind of thing, I buy it, Mm -hmm. like that they're still all from fifth grade. Yeah. So I, I don't know if she would get a positive benefit from that sort of consistent like feed in of new people all the time. Yeah. Or whether she's just more interesting than the people she'd be she'd be interviewing. But I buy that there will be something. Like her superpower is being herself. Yeah. Uh and I think that's something that we love those people, right? That's Tiffany Haddish. Tiffany yeah. Haddish is a great performer. Yeah. But it's very clear that she's better as herself than anything else. So it'll be interesting to see what's the avenue that best benefits from Jessica Simpson being Jessica Simpson. Let us know then what you think, what's next for Jessica Simpson, what you think of the book, if you haven't read it, if you have read it. Um, And yeah, let us know what you think of that work. How your perception of her changed or whether it reinforced who you always thought she was. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We just finished a discussion about Jessica Simpson seizing power by not giving a shit. Yes. Or that was always her superpower and she's learned to harness it. That's right. Now I'm bringing you um, an artist or artists who are the opposite of not giving a shit. Right. They care so much. Yes. This is the focus of how I would like to talk to you about BTS. 
And I said that it was uh, the convince me episode because uh, at best, yes, I have uh, 16 different points in my thesis about why to care about Jessica Simpson. Right. And you have been trying for some time <laughs> um, to get me and our friends to care about BTS because you're deep in it. You're deep, deep right now. It's real bad. Yeah. But, um, but this is actually not me w- wanting to convince you to care about BTS. I think that given your um, historical relationship with boy bands, it's an interesting thing to examine like a study of boy bands um, from what you know about them and compare it to the version that has come out of South Korea. That said, my interest in this discussion or the thesis question I'd like to ask you is whether or not you agree with their we care so much about validation in the Western world approach. Well, um, this is what I love about you is that your crushes and obsessions rule everything in your life. They govern the way you sleep and what you talk about and what you think about, but they don't penetrate your obsession with work. So I know that if they're here, if we're talking about them in this context, that there's a work scenario to discuss. Yes. Please, uh, opening arguments, counselor. (laughs) Well, first of all, where do you want to start? Do you need to be introduced to them individually? I mean, you tell me. I want to know their, yes, I do, but I think that you want me not to. I think you want me to see them as the unit that they are. Let's do it anyway. Tell mm-hmm. me their names. In what what order are we going in? Alphabetical, we'll age go, descending, or what? We'll go with the order that they're always presented. Great. Like how they present themselves. Yeah. So RM yeah. is the leader. Okay. He calls himself the leader. He's acknowledged as the leader. Sure. He's also the spokesperson because he he speaks English most proficiently. Is he the best singer? Because if no. we're talking about a boy band format, the person yeah. who's often the leader mm-hmm. is also seen as the lead singer, the best singer. No. Okay. He is… So in BTS, um, there's a there's seven of them. Yes. There's a rap line. So there are three rappers and there are three vo- uh, four vocalists. Right. He's one of the rappers. But not the best one. Uh, probably argue… He does the most writing. So if you go up and down the album, even on the songs that don't have a long rap, he contributes a lot. He, like, he's credited the most on the, on the album. You see why I'm asking, though. Yeah. Because the, the leader of Destiny's Child or of NSYNC or of yeah. uh, Backstreet or whatever yeah. is seen to be the person who is the best, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a different format right off the top. Yeah, it's different. Great. Okay, so… Um, so RM is the first member. Suga, yeah, S U G A, is the second person usually presented. Then it's J Hope, Jin, yeah. Sometimes I think J Jin and J Hope. I mean, listen, a, a true fucking fan would be able to tell you if it's Jin or J Hope, but whatever. Let's uh-huh. move on. Then it's Jimin, J I M I N. Then it's V. That's mm-hmm. his stage name. Okay. I'm assuming you don't need the real name, so that's I, fine. I, for this purpose, I <laughs> yeah. think we're okay. And then it's Jungkook. Okay. Um, and give me in one word, since you started off with RM is the leader, mm-hmm. give me a one-word bio of the subsequent six. 
So oh my God. Shuga is what? A rapper. Great. Uh, J-Hope is what? J-Hope. Yeah. Uh, is rapper. Okay. And like the best dancer. Okay. Jin? Uh, vocalist. Uh-huh. Voc- then the rest are vocalists. But uh, sorry, and Jungkook is can Jungkook can is a vocalist and a rapper, and all of them can dance, obviously. But J Hope is recognized to be the most skilled dancer. I think what I was l- also looking for out of <laughs> leader was the bad boy or the teddy bear or something like that. Do we not have those roles? A little bit. Okay. So J Hope is the Joker. Okay. Clown. Hmm. Um. Uh. Jin is the self-styled, like his slogan is worldwide handsome, so the self-styled hunk, if okay. you will, yep. right? Um, uh, v is like the fashion plate. Uh-huh. The um, Victoria Beckham in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, except he's got a really great voice. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, Jungkook is the baby. Right. Right? Yeah. The baby spice, I guess. Sure. But in every one of these bands, there's always the baby, yeah. right? Going yeah. back to the Jackson 5 yeah. and way before. Sure. Right. Anyway, so yes, they each, for the fans, they would say each has a very distinct identity. For your purposes, for our discussion, we do not need to explore. I got it. I got All right. So BTS has had major success. Yes. I mean, they've broken records. Constantly. Constantly. In terms of sales, in terms sales, of tours. Sales, tours. They're like, they're, they're, I mean, they account for like, I don't know, a huge percentage of South Korea's like GDP. Which is that there's no other, <laughs> no other artist in artist the world. In, in almost in any format, right? That's like, right. I did, I think the only comparison would be like, did, did JK Rowling have an effect on the UK's bottom line? But I like the way that they talk about BTS in South Korea is that they're the same basically, as Samsung and Hyundai. Right. They're literally an industry. That's right. So they're huge. And they were huge before last week when the new album came out. Of course. They were already on SNL. Already. Yeah. Yeah. They already had reached certain platforms. Mm -hmm. But with this new album, Map of the Soul 7, Uh they went to New York Mm -hmm. last Friday. They were promoting it. Yeah. And even before last Friday, and this promotional cycle, but especially in this promotional cycle. Mm-hmm. When asked, you've, you're so big, mm-hmm. what's next for you? This yes. album's going to be a success. You're crushing it already. The video, I think, at the point of our recording of this podcast, which is Sunday, has like 75 million views. Right. It's fucking nuts. Enormous. But when they're asked, a common answer that keeps coming out is we want to win a Grammy. Uh-huh. And they also did an interview. They were quite select with their interviews. They did a few. I mean, like the Today Show and all that, like, but huge market interviews. But they did take time out of this very whirlwind schedule to sit down with the Recording Academy and do an interview with the Recording Academy. Okay. In which they talked about their music. They talked about their art. Um, there was a question asked about like genre, like, you know, you guys are doing pop, you guys are doing rap pop, whatever. They're like, there is no genre anymore. The genre is BTS. They're making a case to the Recording Academy. And we know this. This is a campaign, right? Uh-huh. We've seen it. Now, the Recording Academy invited them two years ago to present. And this year at the Grammys, they were, they had a presence because they performed with 
Lil Nas X. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To celebrate Old Town Old Tamara. Tamara. Yeah. But the Recording Academy could have nominated them like this past year because they had an album out in 2019. Didn't nominate them or at least in a significant category. They are chasing a glory like an institution, a very North American, a very American institution when almost every single act at the Grammys can't come close to those numbers. Well, listen, I knew that there were going to be lots of things I didn't know in this discussion, but I'm surprised to find myself in the position that I'm now in. Um, Can we talk about Grammy nominating and voting? Because obviously we've been hearing for years uh, from a number of different artists that the Grammys are unfair, that they're stacked, that they're whatever. So they are necessarily subjective, right? Because it's not just based on sales. True? True. And it's not the same as uh, as the acting awards wherein they are voted on by, in some version of or another, a jury of their peers. True? I think the entire Recording Academy, when it comes to, like, I, I, I'm not an expert in how the Recording Academy votes, but in the preliminary categories, mm-hmm. for sure, there are like certain craft-based pillars that submit and determine what gets into certain categories. But then, what do you? Sorry, break that down one more. Like, for, me. for instance, in acting, mm-hmm. in order to narrow the five actors nominated for best actor, yes, like to the, to get to those, right? Yeah, the actors branch, yes compiles the nominations. Yeah, that's right. So then when you get to the five, then the voting is open to the entire Academy. That's right. I believe it's similar with the Recording Academy. I I understand uh, what you're saying. Yeah, Yeah, that that people are, they have sort of their specialty that they're allowed to weigh in on, and then the finals are the finals. So, um, but I like that you're bringing this up with acting and with film because... We just saw mm-hmm. a South Korean film yep. win the Oscar against lots and lots of odds. Win several Oscars. Yes. Yeah. And win the Oscar for Best Picture. So we saw a similar campaign from Parasite, Team Parasite and Bong Joon-ho. Yes. It looked a little different. Yeah. And in the music industry, we may be looking at a similar, um, a similar game. Mm-hmm. Although the outcome might be completely different. But when we're talking about the work of going for an accolade mm-hmm. and going for a trophy, I'm interested in what your thoughts are about outsiders yeah. trying to seek validation from an institution that, that traditionally keeps outsiders out. Right. I mean, I'm immediately a bit tense about it, if, I, if I'm if i going to be honest with you. Uh, a few weeks ago, we were talking about those uh, sort of biographic music documentaries. And we said, why are they limited to music? And the answer is, of course, that musical artists are considered to be themselves their own product, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You don't do a documentary about Anne Hathaway because Anne Hathaway is so many different characters as her product, yeah. right? 
Um, if Parasite had not done as well, if it had not won the Oscar or or the movies that didn't, for mm -hmm. example, they are discrete units, right? The judgment is on this unit of entertainment this year in this playing field. And maybe next year, Bong Joon-ho or Noah Baumbach or whoever, different scenario, different product, right? It sort of wipes the slate clean. Yeah. What makes me nervous about the Grammys is that it seems to be much more of a judgment on the artist as people. Yeah. Even though I know it's about like, oh, this album is eligible or not. But uh -huh. that's not how we play it most of the time, no. right? It's about best new artist is Rihanna. I don't think Rihanna ever won best new artist, but you get the idea. Yeah. And it's it's an it's a a crowning of the person, of the act, as opposed to what they did that year. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it makes me tense because I think to uh, the point of Drake and Beyonce and other people who have stopped sort of participating, yeah. it's like, I don't need your anointment as to whether or not I'm a good artist, uh, whether I'm good at what I choose to do. Whereas, uh, yeah, a film, a performance is, here's what I did this year, yeah. but it's not an overall mm -hmm. award. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And to weave in your specialization about boy bands, right. traditionally the Recording Academy and the Grammys and maybe society as a whole doesn't take boy band into consideration as art. Like if you think about in your previous jobs… yeah the bands that you were covering, yep, they didn't go on to win Grammys. No. And they were seen as being like an entertainment product. Mm -hmm. But it was when those entertainment products like broke apart that then it was like, okay, now you can be an artist, yeah. Justin Timberlake. That's or right. uh, Or even Beyonce, right? Like yes. I don't think a lot of people see Destiny's Child as art, as an achievement in and of itself. That's right. Right? Or Spice Girls. Right. right. Exactly. Yes. So I guess my interest in, in exploring this with you is obviously about tastemakers determining your work. Right. And who gets to be a tastemaker and whether or not we need or should be assigning them that role um, when clearly the existing tastemakers aren't taking into account whose, whose opinion and whose taste matters. We talked before about in a Harry Styles conversation, for example, mm -hmm. how he has constantly defended the taste of young women. Right. Of, of teenagers. Yeah. Um, that it shouldn't be less than. Mm -hmm. And I think that it has a really interesting impact on art and artistic validation, especially where it relates to marginalized or oppressed people. Okay. So let's dig into that. So BTS are, as you say, phenomenally, phenomenally successful. By any standardized benchmark everywhere in the world. And we're going to come back to that. But here's my question to you, and you have to answer honestly. Yeah. Um, without any of this being seen as a negative, how much of their product is overtly catering to the tastes of young girls, let's say? Uh, lots. Okay. Yeah. Go on. So, um, I, they, and it's not a secret, like mm -hmm. they say that 
their fans mm-hmm. called armies yep. are the like are their most important priority mm-hmm. that they do what they do for army right um and that they they sing for them they write for them they they have positive messaging right in their music and right. they have a certain value system they're upholding um and so yes they are making music to make their fans happy and is there anything that you can point to uh, obviously this new album just dropped and so forth. Is there anything that you can point to where you'd say, oh, this is, this might upset the fans or this might be not for them. This is them trying a thing or whatever. No. And yet, no, I can't point to anything on the new album that would upset fans. Uh, contrary, the fans are, I'm, I'm, I think, very, very happy. I will say, though, it doesn't mean that they're compromising themselves. Like, it it does – on this album in particular, everybody gets a solo, Mm -hmm. and all of their solo work is quite introspective, and it's – like, some of it is is pretty heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I I wouldn't say that the fan service, obviously, in a way that I think Mm -hmm. is obvious to me – limits, like, they could be doing so much more, but, like, they have to sing for these armies. I, I can't say that either. You Does don't that feel sense? that. Yeah, no. it makes perfect sense. Yeah. It No, and this is kind of where I'm going. Because, what? oh, and I guess I haven't asked you, in almost every boy band scenario, girl band scenario, to varying degrees, we can point to a, a guru, a, a Svengali, the person who is actually puppeting the mm-hmm. strings. Yeah. Uh does BTS have that person, and who is it? If so, it's a label. Uh huh. It's called Big Hit, right? So their their label is the yeah. Their label is now worth something like seven hundred and fifty million dollars, so right. approaching a billion dollar value based on the success of BTS. And their label, yes, is very much in charge. Has been in charge. So just to like link all our stories together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In South Korea and it's quite well known, there is a trainee program. Uh So you can sign up for in different, like, companies Uh for this program, like a training school to be an idol. Back up. Back up, back up, back up. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What it sounds like you're saying, I mean, I think actually what you're saying sounds like – Sometimes you hear of a British artist, uh, the one coming to mind is not a huge name, but uh, Billy Piper comes to mind. And she talks about how she went to stage school. Uh And that's not the same thing as like RADA, like the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art or whatever. Right. There are like training schools that are uh, producing pop uh, in the biggest sense, right? Not just pop music, but like popular whatever. Yeah. That sounds like what you're getting at. Similar. Okay. So what they do is they, like, go into the programs, they're trainees, and then they get kind of, a lot of them get matched together in a group. So it's the Mickey Mouse Club. Yes. Right. Yes. Right? And in that time, they train together. They learn dance. Mm -hmm. They learn vocals. Yeah. They learn all of this. Right. So, you know, the reason why they're such accomplished dancers and they're so in unison is because... Like the Mickey Mouse Club, right? They've been learning their part mm-hmm. and what their contribution is in the group, and they've been doing it for seven years. Or I don't know. I, listen, I don't have the statistics of like when each member signed their contract. But I whatever. understand. I get it. 
Anyway, mm-hmm. so um, to to go back to your question about the Svengali uh, for BTS, Big Hit Entertainment mm-hmm. is the um, company that was quite small at the time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't one of the major players in the early 2010s. Yeah. But in what was already a massive K-pop yeah. industry. Yeah. Like this was a already a burgeoning thing. industry and there were bigger companies. Yes. They were a small outfit. Yep. But they, in their program, they had these seven kids. Yeah. They put them together. They like put all their money into producing and like molding these kids. They then, boom, they launched and this is the result. So Big Hit is their label. And they, there are some conspiracy theorists who are like, yes, this is manufactured, big hit. It's like… They, what, what's manufactured? Um, like this is, like BTS is essentially Milli Vanilli in the, not Milli, like maybe not, that's not, because uh, they didn't actually do their own singing, but that they are produced, like they don't actually write, that they are just puppets, that big hit is like the, the, the all encompassing power god that dictates their every move that these kids don't have because per- they have to live together too oh yeah but I think I don't care <laughs> I know right. I truly I don't care because the end result is the same does that make sense yeah if if let's say that's the case let's say that say it again all I want to say is big fun which is not it big, big hit big hit mm-hmm. um if big hit is in the business of forming creating and svengaliing bands. Yeah. No other band has become this big. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like this is the alchemy that worked. Yeah. So it's not, it's not the same thing. This is why I, I am frustrated with people who talk about factory settings because, um, things work when they work and it's not as though pop music was the beginning of the factory setting either. Uh, Carol King, for example, worked in a like a, a a songwriting factory mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, back then all the different songwriters would be in different rooms with pianos in like the facility that the record company owned and they churned out hits or not. The point is a hit is still a hit. A Something that resonates with the audience is still mm-hmm. resonant. Does yep. that make sense? Yes. It's like saying, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in the business of of writing stuff, and uh, so these scripts aren't authentic because I keep trying to make them better. It's right. like, no, the one that resonates is the one that resonates. Does that make sense? I hear you, but I'm glad that we spent time talking about this because that definitely is a barrier to acceptance and accolades mm-hmm. and recognition and Grammy awards. Right. So these these foreigners for lack of a better word yeah. right are coming in they've invaded they've invaded the west already yes. by numbers and money um but they now want the symbol of essentially north american music excellence they want a grammy mm-hmm. um and my quest like what i'm trying to wrestle with is is should they have this ambition well, he, yeah. And, but who's to say? Like, at the same time, I recognize, I can't tell anyone who, like, what ambition to have. If you had a fucking ambition, it's not my business. It's how you shouldn't be going for that thing. And yet, I do think on a bigger, bigger scale, um, the more we support and crave the symbols of the status quo, 
the longer we support the status quo. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with you. And the reason I asked you if there was a person, a name, mm-hmm. is because in other people who we've seen grow and come up in this yeah. way, um, it's very clear that they, when the young person just wants to make music, that there's also the person who's like, well, this is the direction you should go, right? right? Like, let's play a little small experiment right now, yeah. okay? Uh, we're going to play, like, artist and uh, and Svengali, right? Okay. I say Justin Bieber. You say? Scooter Braun. I say NSYNC. You say? Lou Perman. I say Destiny's Child. You say? Matthew Knowles. Right. Um, all in these cases, all somebody who's like, this is what we're driving for and at, mm-hmm. right? And then uh, in your point, you know, there's somebody who, when the artist breaks away, they're like, no, now I'm doing it for me, right? right? People sometimes have a hard time believing that any group of people can do it for them. Does that make sense? Yeah. That they're doing it for them for their own selves. And I think you're going to be really happy with this comparison. Um one situation that shocked everybody and one of the reasons, speaking of things that are naturally bigger than they have any right to be, the comparison that I think of is when all six members of the cast of Friends banded together to make a million dollars a piece. Per right? episode. Per episode. Yeah. And they said publicly, we're all negotiating together. We're not allowing one of us to get ahead of the other, Right. They were certainly very beloved. They were doing what they did for the fans, right? And then they said, well, this is our goal and we're doing it together. Obviously, it benefits each of them personally. Yeah. But they were saying, we're going we're gonna to do this as a one unit. That's one of the few examples I can think of where a team was for a team's sake as opposed to one person's secret interests. Does that make sense? Yep. So here we are, and you're asking, should they care about this Grammy? And here's my first question. If I want to win an Oscar, for example, or whatever, it's because of what it can do for me, right? If I win, I get a higher profile. I am seen as doing award-winning work. Then I get more work. Then I get closer to being able to do what I want to do. Maybe I have more sales. I make more money right? Yeah. Real clear through line there. By your own admission and by their own bio, they've broken all the records. They've made all the money, give or take whether they get the money or the record company, whatever, for the sake of argument, right? Yep. Um, They have all the fans and all the acclaim. And you seem to say to me that either they don't feel artistically constrained, like that this is what they want to be making, this yeah. music. That's what they say. So yeah, sure. That's the face value. Or that, um, yeah, or that they're not bothered by the fact that what they're making is also what the fans want. Yeah. So what does a Grammy give them? That's my question. Like, I think we have to break down what the award would mean for people who already have all the things. Well, it is a little bit cultural in that they have a lot of, they've won everything there is to win in East Asia. Right. Many, many times. Sure. And in that, in their industry, in their culture, winning awards means a lot. 
But okay, like it but- is. It, there's an attachment. There is. There is definitely a culturally important attachment to the business in, um, in South Korea, that they're the the certain awards that they're going for is like, it's it's so important. Because why? Like, take me two steps further. Because if you win the awards, then what? It's not that you're not that you're now legitimate because they're clearly already yeah. legitimate. It's 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 like um. It's a talisman. Like, it is – it's proof. I mean, I hear you and I get it. Yeah. And God knows there are awards I'd like to win. And we talk <laughs> about, like, you know, yeah. uh, MacArthur Genius Grants and all the rest of it. But the proof already exists. I know. So I'm I'm trying to see what, what would change – maybe this is a better question. Mm-hmm. What would change about the lives or career of BTS if they had a Grammy well, that – yeah, that's a great question, but I don't know that much would change. Okay, so it is, it's there for its own sake. It, listen, it would be historical, mm-hmm. so it would be what, like, Parasite mm-hmm. meant yep. for South Korea in terms of film. Yes. To have a widely acknowledged, like, this is the best film of 2019. Right. Or according to the Academy. Um, so it would be historical, mm-hmm. definitely, and no, they would know that like no other outfit coming out of South Korea or East Asia period could lay claim to the same. And for them, clearly, that means a lot today. Uh-huh. In the future, what does it mean? Like what more could they – does that mean that they'd be richer? Like, I mean, they're already – like it is – to your point, they already have all the money, right? Mm-hmm. They already have all the fans. They have they can't possibly sell out any more stadiums than they've already sold out. Right. So what does it get you? I don't know. But when we're talking about how much to care about certain things when you have power or to have like when you don't have power or in the pursuit of power or whatever. It's really interesting to care so much about this one thing in comparison to somebody we've just talked about who has been able to let go of caring. Well, what's interesting about it is that if I, I, I appreciate that we went down the road of what does a Grammy mean? And you said it's a talisman and it sort of is its own sake, right? Mm-hmm. It's a trophy, right? Yes. Literally. And the thing about a trophy is that the trophy is acknowledgement that you did the work. Yeah. And what I'm thinking about here, of course, I hope it's obvious right now, is cheer. Mm. How many times has Navarro College won the championship? Like seven? Uh, right. It, the, you know, there are so many championships, there are grand national championships, whatever, right? At one point, Monica says, I don't need to win another championship. I'm doing it for you guys. She says. Right. Do we believe her? <laughs> Not that much. Yeah. But the fact is that achievement has been achieved. That bell has been rung. Yeah. So what that trophy literally is, is a testament to the work. We did this. We we worked and we we were here. It's, yeah. it's, it's almost like, this is kind of morbid, but it's all, almost like a gravestone. It's a physical embodiment of marking the last year, right? Mm -hmm. Because they work as, they work hard 
whether they win that year, whether they don't yeah. in those years that they didn't, right? Lots of teams who work equally as hard don't get the trophy. But that's what the prize is. It's a little marker to say to you, this this is what this means. This is uh, an acknowledgement of your sleepless nights and your, mm. like, concussions and whatnot. Yeah. Or, you know, you like to buy, uh, well, you like to buy things like clothes, um, but it's often also commemorative, right? It is. These are the shoes that you bought when this thing happened. These are the things that you bought because you got to interview Sandra O oh to yeah. wear them, right? So from that perspective, when you're touring as a band and you sell out stadiums, but then like, you know, then everybody goes away the next morning, right? Uh, you you shoot a show or you like tape something, you tape SNL even, um, and it's amazing, but then it's gone the next day. I sort of can see a world in which a Grammy, an award, is just a permanent, unmoving thing that says, okay, we acknowledge that you did something. Yeah. I, that seems reasonable. I think, and listen, if we were having this conversation in a vacuum just about the Grammy itself, I'd be willing to stop there. But I go on and come back to that that thing where, and these are some of the conversations happening around Parasite too. When Bong Joon-ho was campaigning for um, an Oscar for Parasite, he definitely wanted it. Like mm-hmm. he relocated mm-hmm. to Los Angeles for about two months for, sure. for the campaign circuit. And yet the things that he would say, and this includes the quote at the Golden Globes about the one-inch space for subtitles, mm-hmm. was also a check to the Academy. He would, you know, he, he did an interview where he called um, the Oscars a local award, which is <laughs> genius, yeah, right? It's, like, oh. it's just so, and of course, he won the local award, thereby making it not so local. Right. But the way he went about this campaign was to be like, yeah, I want it, I'm here, I'm in LA, but I'm not going to like kind of thirst for it in that way that that is changing, um, that, that doesn't acknowledge the fact that, you know what, a, the benchmark mark for excellence in film shouldn't just be gathered in Hollywood. Right. Shouldn't just be in English, shouldn't just be yeah. in Hollywood. I mean, I'll take it, but I'm taking it to make a point that you guys have to be, like, you have to be not so local. Right. But there is an argument to be made that... Bong Joon-ho still can benefit personally and materially from that Oscar win, yeah. right? Where BTS is concerned, they're different because there's nothing else. No. Materially. Materially. But I'm so glad that you brought that up because that, to me, made it all clear for me. Yeah. BTS has every accolade. They've sold out every everything. They have every stadium, blah, 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 right? But what you're saying to me, and I'm going to be real bald about it, is that if they win a Grammy, they can add broke boundaries of racism to their resume. What other band has that? I don't know. I'm trying to think. Can you? I mean, I think there is certainly, uh, I think gener- a generation or two ago, I think there were many black artists who were doing that same thing, yeah. right? I think that was... Uh, for Diana Ross, that was a huge accomplishment. Yeah. I think for uh, probably Whitney Houston after her, right? Like that kind of thing. 
uh, for the Jackson 5 and Michael Jackson. I think that was a thing. Um, but I think that to me is, again, to be a psychic channeler once again. Oh, get this though. While Diana Ross has a Lifetime Achievement Grammy, no Grammys have been awarded to Diana Ross in a competitive category. Mm, there you go. Yeah. But that to me is what the achievement is, right? We're BTS. We've had all this acclaim, achievement, blah, blah, blah. And we forced the Grammys to confront their racism. We forced them to change their mental philosophy. That's what that achievement is, right? Would be. Uh, that, But that's yeah. what it is in their minds. That's yeah. In my mind, that's what that looks like. Right. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm as a fan, but as an observer of the industry and how we're asking it to change mm-hmm. and are observing the change, I think this is the thought process that a lot of um that many, certainly many artists are examining and struggling with is um whether or not when you're the the whole purpose of not the whole purpose but when when your work is pushing boundaries and um asking us asking people to have a different perspective about art and creativity and who gets to make it whether or not in the pursuit of recognition you still end up upholding the agents of institutionalized elitism and I don't think, yeah, I don't think anybody has the answer, but I do think these, more and more, these are the conversations we're going to have to have. Yeah, for sure. And I immediately started thinking about the, uh, you know, more than a handful of artists who we know who have, like, lobbied in Congress for this or that, right? Or who have tried to get laws changed or passed or whatever, it, who at a certain point say, well, I have enough money or I have enough acclaim or whatever. What am I going to do for the world with all this that I've been given, right? Yeah. And then they go and and lobby for something or campaign for something. And those awards in that instance can be part of that trajectory, right? If I win this award, then I have enough power and enough voice that then I can go and change something. And that sort of seems justifiable even though it's an award that, to your point, upholds the status quo. So I sort of can see it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, uh, I love that we're getting to a place where these awards aren't a monolith, right? I think a lot more people talk about the BAFTAs than they used to a decade ago, right? Right? They're seen as being part of the uh, ecosystem that fuels a true best film. Right. Yes. Um, you know, I wish there were more things that we could point to, except that, uh, you know, uh, Elite. Remember that? You love that show. Oh where's Elite is... Season three is coming next month. And uh, where's Elite from? Spain. Right. So Elite is from Spain. So, you know, that's a, a marker. Netflix has done a lot in that regard, right? Yeah. That like some of our favorite programs are not just North American. So I think that, you know, changing the game is, I I think you choose one or the other, I guess is my point, right? If there are people who boycott the Oscars or the Grammys because of how uniformly they ignore certain categories and they go off and start new metrics, 
of of how to change things, that's one thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. The people who try to use, like, having gamed the system from the inside, having Trojan horsed it a little bit, and win the Grammy or the Oscar or whatever, and then use that to expand their worldview, that's another view. Yeah. Um, I do probably think that you that you pick a lane. If you're lucky enough to be that high achieving, I think you you do pick a lane at that point. Or that there's an argument that says if you want to dismantle the Grammys, you have to first win one so you understand how it works. Ha. Huh. Well, there. While I don't think that you need to have like – um, similar encyclopedic knowledge of this boy band uh-huh. the way you do of other boy bands. Uh-huh. Something to keep an eye on over the next 12 months. Well, and to that point… What they're uh, aiming at. Yeah, and if they're on this massive press tour out of the the album, to see how they… what moves they make to make that happen will be really interesting. Well, they've taken over a full hour of The Tonight Show. Like a full hour is of The Tonight Show is dedicated to BTS. I, um, uh, they're doing carpool karaoke. All kinds of new shit is dropping every single day. We'll see how... May, maybe I'll check you in a month <laughs> to see how your BTS progress is coming along. Yeah, it sounds like they're going to be undeniable, and that may be the move. On that note, thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you for writing in always with your thoughts and suggestions. Let us know what you think of Jessica Simpson and BTS and boy bands and pop music, music that women and girls like. Um, and, uh, also, um, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and leave comments and reviews. They always help us. We have some fun stuff coming up that we are excited to tell you guys about. Uh, So there's that to look forward to and uh, look forward to more episodes that are based on the things you want to hear. We'll be back next week, hopefully healthier. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.